Hello, I'm Professor Michael Scharf from Case Western Reserve University School of Law, and I'm very happy and privileged to be part of the UN's new visual lecture series. What I'm going to be talking to you about today is maintaining control of a war crimes trial. And my background is that about 15 years ago, I was attorney advisor for United Nations Affairs at the US Department of State when the first international criminal tribunal since Nuremberg was created, the Yugoslavia Tribunal. And I had a, a major role to play in the drafting of the statute, the drafting of its rules of procedure. And after I entered academia, I created a war crimes research office which has to date provided 150 legal memorandum to five international war crimes tribunals, hybrid tribunals, and even internationalized domestic tribunals. Recently, I've been working with the judges and prosecutors of the Iraqi High Tribunal and the Cambodia Tribunal. And one of the issues that especially came up during the trial of Saddam Hussein was how do you maintain control of a war crimes trial when the defendant is bound and determined to disrupt the proceedings. After the Saddam trial, which was probably one of the messier trials in legal history, was concluded, the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, Luis Moreno Ocampo, asked me to come up and give a lecture to his staff at The Hague to help them prepare for the trials that would be coming down the pike. And this lecture today is similar to that lecture. The first thing we need to address is, why is there a need to maintain control of the courtroom in a war crimes trial that is unique to these kinds of trials? The thing is that former leaders do not actually think that they have a high likelihood of being acquitted by playing by the rules. So they have their own agenda for war crimes trials. First of all, they seek to derail the proceedings. If they can make the trial fall apart, and buy some time, maybe they believe they can last long enough for there to be a negotiated settlement where maybe there would be an amnesty for peace swap and they could go free. And there is some history for war crimes leaders to be given amnesty or given exile despite the atrocities that they've committed as the price for attaining peace in different parts of the world. The second thing that these leaders on trial try to do is to hijack the proceedings. They've been discredited in the eyes of their local populations. They have fallen from power, they've been surrendered to the international tribunals, and they are now a defendant, an ordinary criminal. And what they seek to do is transform themselves back into the leader they once were, to make themselves a martyr in the eyes of their populations and a hero for the ages. And finally, they try to discredit the tribunals. They do this by trying to provoke the judges into shouting at them, into losing their temper, into losing control of the courtroom so that the proceedings will look very unfair and then they can say, well, even if I was convicted, it was a completely unfair and a sham trial. There have been examples throughout history of war crimes trials, beginning with the first international war crimes trial, Nuremberg, where the leaders have been successful at these strategies and where the courts have really struggled with maintaining control of the courtroom. The story of Hermann Goering is a prime example. Back in 1945, when Hermann Goering and the other 22 surviving leaders of Nazi Germany were on trial, the chief prosecutor, 
Robert Jackson, who had been a Supreme Court Justice in the United States, felt that his shining moment during that trial would be when he could cross-examine Hermann Goering, the deputy Fuhrer, and get Hermann Goering to admit the mistakes of the Nazi ideology. If he could get Hermann Goering to admit that everything that they had put in place, including the Holocaust, was a huge fiasco, then history would remember that moment and it would have a huge effect in the rebuilding of Germany and the transition of the German people from Nazis to a new democratic government. Well, the problem for Robert Jackson was that one of the judges was Francis Biddle, who had been his old opponent in the United States. Francis Biddle had been the Solicitor General of the United States while Jackson was the Supreme Court Justice. And many a time, Biddle had lost cases and felt mistreated by Jackson. So now, at Nuremberg, the tables were turned. Francis Biddle was the judge, one of four, at the Nuremberg trial, and Jackson was the prosecutor. And when Jackson strived to make this his moment of history, he was undone by decisions from the bench led by Francis Biddle. What Biddle said was, Robert Jackson, you can't simply ask yes or no questions of the defendant and lead them along Perry Mason style. Instead, this is a former leader. He has not even been convicted, and we will give him as much leeway as he wants to answer the questions as long as he wants and in any manner that he wants. And because of this, the meticulously designed cross-examination and the questions that Jackson had prepared literally had to be cast aside. And instead, history records that Hermann Goering got the better of Robert Jackson. That during the three days he was on the stand in cross-examination, rather than being discredited, Hermann Goering was able to once again use the proceedings, which were broadcast on radio and shown in newscasts, and also written up in the local newspapers. And he used those proceedings to re-propagandize the Nazi ideology to the German people. At the end of the Nuremberg trial, there is a myth that Nuremberg created a historic record, discredited the German leaders, and helped the German people quickly transition into a Western bulwark. The myth has been facilitated by the fact that certain opinion polls that were taken in Germany from 1946 to 1958 were classified as secret. The reason they were classified as secret was because they asked two questions of the German people. First of all, they said, did you think Hermann Goering and the other Nazis got a fair trial? And second, they asked, did you think that Hermann Goering and the other Nazis who were convicted were actually guilty? And what is extremely surprising, but kept secret for 50 years, was the results of those opinion polls. Every year for 10 years, the German people overwhelmingly answered, and I'm talking about numbers as high as 85 to 90 percent on each of those polls, they would say that Hermann Goering did not get a fair trial and that they did not believe he was guilty. That's the reason those opinion polls were classified as secret, because they actually discredited the Nuremberg trial and showed that the educative function, or the, as Professor Mark Drumble calls it, the expressivist function of international tribunals was not actually successful in Nuremberg.
In fact, it took another two to three decades before the popular opinion in Germany began to switch. There had to actually be generation changes, and many different things contributed to the change. So now, today, 60 years later, the German people are strong proponents of international criminal tribunals. They strongly endorse the Nuremberg legacy, and the Nazis have been discredited. But that wasn't the case in the immediate aftermath of Nuremberg. And part of the reason for that was because they lost control of the proceedings at just the moment when they could have made the most important message to the German people. Another case, much more recent, would be that before the Yugoslavia Tribunal. The Yugoslavia Tribunal was created in 1993 and was actually launched in 1995. And Slobodan Milosevic, the former president of Yugoslavia, became the first leader since Hermann Goering to be tried by an international criminal tribunal. He took a page out of Hermann Goering's book. He sought to use the proceedings as a way to rehabilitate himself. For he had fallen from power, and his country had been economically demolished, and his people had actually risen up against him when he tried to steal an election. And in a moment that looked like Tiananmen Square, his own army backed down, and there was a transition to a new president, Kostanitsa. And Milosevic found himself in The Hague, a discredited leader. But he was a wily leader. He was somebody who knew how to use this trial. And the judges really faced a big challenge with Slobodan Milosevic. The first thing he did is he said that I want to exercise my right of self-representation. I want to be my own lawyer. And after all, Milosevic had graduated top in his class from Belgrade University Law School and had been a very good lawyer and businessman before entering government and politics. So the tribunal said, our statute says the defendant has a right to represent himself or be represented by counsel. And if he chooses to represent himself, our hands are tied. He has to be allowed to do that. Now, in fact, Milosevic wasn't all alone in the courtroom like he looked on television, but rather there were a hundred lawyers that had volunteered to help him in his cause, writing cross-examination questions for him, investigating every little factoid about the defendant and the prosecution witnesses so that he could be very effective in the courtroom. But what he was most effective of, of doing, using his right of self-representation, was hijacking the trial. For what you're supposed to do as a lawyer in the courtroom is ask questions of the prosecution witnesses that are relevant to the charges and relevant to the case against you. But instead of asking questions, Milosevic would go off on long political tirades, sometimes lasting as long as 45 minutes. And the judges would say, is there a question there? And there was very little the judges could do to control Milosevic. Now, normally in a courtroom, when you have a lawyer presenting a case, the judges have a high degree of control. Because if the lawyer does not follow the internal rules, the judges can say, hey, you're out of line. And if you do not start to follow the rules, you can be sanctioned. For example, you can be fined, you can spend a night in jail, you can even be disbarred. Well, for Milosevic, he didn't have any money left. They had confiscated all of it. He was already in jail, and he wasn't planning on being a practicing attorney anyway. So what did he have to gain by following the rules? And what leverage did the judges have? Very little. 
In addition to turning cross-examinations into these long-winded political diatribes, he was also very rude to the judges, trying to discredit the court and not show it the respect that a judicial institution is entitled to. For example, he would not rise when the judges came into the courtroom. He would not refer to the judge as Your Honor or Judge May, but rather he called the presiding judge from the United Kingdom Mr. May, which really rankled Judge May. Not only that, but he would treat the witnesses in a disrespectful and sometimes very scary manner with threats and antagonism that would normally get a defense counsel thrown out of the courtroom. And he got away with it. And so during his trial, there were opinion polls in Serbia and in Bosnia, in the Bosnian Serb areas, similar to those opinion polls I referred to in Germany 55 years earlier. And what they showed was that during the trial, Milosevic's popularity actually doubled in Serbia. He became, from a reviled former discredited leader, the fourth most popular person in all of Serbia, behind only a rock star, a basketball star, and another politician. And during this time, he actually ran for parliament and won in a landslide election from the courtroom. He didn't even have to campaign, for every day in the trial was his campaign. Well, because of this, the idea that the Yugoslavia Tribunal would discredit the Serb nationalist ideology and discredit Slobodan Milosevic was undone. And it was undone because the court lost control of its courtroom. Another nationalist leader was subsequently tried and is on trial today, even as this is being recorded. His name is Sejal. Sejal makes Milosevic look like a lamb. What Sejal has done in the courtroom is absolutely scary. Outside of court, he has been writing books about the different participants in the proceedings. He's written books with bombastic titles about the prosecutor, about the chief judge, and about the chief trial attorneys. And these books are smuggled out of his jail cell, and they are widely distributed throughout Serbia, making him look like a hero. In his court documents, he treats the court prosecution, the judges, and the registrar with such utter disrespect using foul language that you would never even see in a regular court document. And he gets away with it. Well, the Yugoslavia Tribunal is not unique in that respect. As I said at the beginning of this lecture, I spent a lot of time working with the judges of the Saddam Hussein trial. And we knew that Saddam Hussein was going to take a page out of the same playbook. But what Saddam Hussein was able to do in his trial dwarfed anything that Milosevic and Sejal and even Goering had done. First of all, the Saddam Hussein trial was tried before something called the Iraqi High Tribunal. It's not truly an international court like the Yugoslavia Tribunal or the Rwanda Tribunal. It's not even a hybrid court like the Sierra Leone Tribunal or the Cambodia Tribunal. But what it is is an internationalized domestic tribunal. For its statute is almost identical, and its rules are almost identical to the Yugoslavia and Rwanda tribunal statute and rules, which define the crimes and give the rights of the defendant. One small change they made, however, was they said Saddam Hussein could not represent himself. And they did this because they were afraid in the very critical situation in Iraq that if he pulled a Milosevic, he could really ignite a civil war. 
Well, what we who train the judges didn't understand, and this is a lesson for all people who work with international tribunal judges and national tribunal judges, is that they have their own legal culture and way of doing things that may not show up on paper. And one of the things that was unique to Iraq is that they always allow a defendant to ask questions after their lawyer is done questioning the witnesses. In, in the United States, we would consider that allowing the defendant to be a co-counsel. And there is precedent in the United States saying that that is not allowed. But in many countries, this is a tradition, and especially in civil law countries and those in the Middle East. Saddam Hussein used his right to ask questions after his lawyer was done the same way Milosevic used his right of self-representation. First of all, there were the angry outbursts. There was the fact that he would say terrible things about the judges. He would call them the worst and most offensive names imaginable in Iraq. He also would do things like argue that in the middle of a prosecution witness, someone, for example, who was a female victim of rape, who was telling the tale of horrors that she suffered, he would say, it's time for us to take a prayer break. And he would do other things to try to distract the world's attention from the testimony. And of course, like all modern trials, the Iraqi High Tribunal trial was also being televised so that everybody, not just in Iraq, but throughout the world, could see these things. Like Slobodan Milosevic, Saddam Hussein also made political statements during what was supposed to be questioning of witnesses. But his statements went way beyond anything that Milosevic or Sejal had done. What he tried to do is look directly into the camera, knowing that his entire population were watching. It was the most watched event in all of Iraq. Throughout the countryside, people were crammed into bars and little uh, cafes, and they were watching everything that went on during this trial that was being broadcast gavel to gavel. And he would lean into the camera, and he would exert his followers to go out and murder one of the American or allied occupiers or one of the Iraqi government followers. One of the ironic moments of that trial was when the judge leaned toward Saddam and said, Saddam, shame on you. It's one thing to say, kill an American, but never say kill an Iraqi. The irony, I think, is not missed, and that is that every time he would use his trial to broadcast these messages of hate and to try to incite violence, there was, in fact, a corresponding spike in violence in Iraq. And during his trial, the violence continued to escalate. The trial was not having the effect of reconciliation, of creating peace, but rather it was one more element in inflaming a population that was growing out of control. In addition to that, Saddam Hussein also used the vehicles of boycotts and walkouts. He would turn his back on the judges and try to discredit them, or he would just walk out of the courtroom. And when they would say, where are you going? You can't just leave in the middle of this testimony. He would say, stop me. And what could they do? Throw him in jail? He already was in jail. And when he wasn't in the courtroom, the television cameras and the media lost interest in the trial. And so the educative function of the trial, the information of those days, really was lost to the local population. Well, how do these disruptive tactics that former leaders on trial undermine the goals and purposes of international justice? Well, from a practical point of view, it makes it more difficult for the judges to ensure that the trial is going to be fair, fair to the defendant.
For if the defendant is not using the trial to prove his innocence, he is not accomplishing anything that is going to help him in the courtroom. Secondly, it hampers the court's ability to facilitate witness testimony. Witnesses are scared to death to testify in a war crimes trial, and they're even more so when they know that they have to go up against a Slobodan Milosevic or a Saddam Hussein, who will angrily question them and often call them a traitor on national television, where all of the followers are watching. It also, and most importantly, undermines the public confidence in the judicial process. The goal of these international tribunals to take a statement from Robert Jackson 60 years ago at Nuremberg is to establish incredible events through credible evidence. It is to create a historic record that will be believed. It is, as George Santayana once said, important that we remember the lessons of the past so we do not repeat the mistakes of the past. And in order to remember those lessons, we have to have a credible record that everybody believes was what happened. And so in order to elevate the rule of law over the force of might and to facilitate the restoration of peace and the transition to justice and democracy, the court proceedings have to be fair and they have to look fair. They have to be respected by the people who are watching them. The Yugoslavia Tribunal, looking at this issue, said, and I will quote from one of their decisions, the defendant's right to employ disruptive tactics which seek to discredit the judicial process must give way to the tribunal's overarching obligation to protect the integrity of the proceedings and to ensure that the administration of justice is not brought into disrepute. So what can a court do when it is wrestling with a former leader on trial? It seems as though the leader and their defense counsel have all the cards. There is very little that a court can do to try to maintain control in such a unique trial. And yet, these tribunals have recognized that it is absolutely essential for them to maintain such control. Well, there are several things they can do. And the lessons that I'm imparting now are not just relevant to international tribunal trials, but also to national war crimes trials. Anytime a former leader is on trial, or anybody who's a politician or has a political following, these are important lessons. The first thing is, there has to be a realistic limit to the right of self-representation. Self-representation is not a right under customary international law, and we need to recall that many countries around the world do not allow it. Rather, they require that anybody in a major trial with serious charges be represented by a lawyer. On the other hand, the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights does call for there to be a choice that the defendant can make between representing himself or having counsel. And all of the major international tribunals, except for the Iraqi High Tribunal, have embraced that, giving the defendants that choice. But the Yugoslavia Tribunal, in wrestling with Milosevic and Sejal, have come to understand that the right of self-representation is not an unqualified right. It is qualified. If you abuse it, you lose it. And therefore, they have come through their precedent to understand that defense counsel need to be assigned under four circumstances. First, when the defendant attempts to boycott his trial. In other words, if the defendant is being his own lawyer 
and he just leaves the courtroom. And the court says, well, what are we going to do? I guess we just aren't going to finish the trial. That's not right. You can't put all the cards into the defendant's hands. So if the defendant boycotts the trial, he loses his right of self-representation. Secondly, where self-representation would prejudice the fair trial rights of one of the other defendants. If there are co-defendants, and many of these war crimes trials involve several people being tried jointly. Thirdly, when the defendant begins to act persistently disruptive and obstructionist, at some point, the right of self-representation must be yanked. And finally, where self-representation would unreasonably prolong the judicial proceedings, as in the Milosevic trial, where his health was at issue. He had very high blood pressure, and by representing himself in the courtroom, he was literally coming close to stroking out or having a heart attack every day in court. The trial judges were really afraid of literally trying him to death. I mean, what would be worse than having him die in the courtroom? And so what they did is they extended his trial. They gave him many days off. He would only have to represent himself and be in the courtroom two or three days a week instead of five or six. He would be given two or three weeks in between different sessions so that he could get his physical condition back in order. It apparently didn't work because after four and a half years of the trial, Milosevic did die, and there was no finality to that trial. There is no judgment when the defendant dies before the verdict has been issued, and therefore his death literally erased history from being written. And that was something that the, the judges were very afraid of, and it came to pass. With respect to minor disruptions, most of these international tribunals have a glass wall. And all you have to do as the judge is have a little switch on your table and you can turn off the microphone when the defendant who's representing himself begins to try to disrupt or derail the trial. And then you can have a talk with him behind closed doors and tell him he's not going to get away with it. He's not going to be heard. He's not going to be seen on television during those moments, so he might as well behave. If the disruptions persist, the judges should give firmer warnings. And among the warnings should be that the defendant will lose his right of self-representation. A lawyer will be assigned to step in for him. The defendant should also be given the right and the ability to reclaim the right if he promises to behave himself. And it may be that the right should be taken and given back several times during the trial as this sort of dance proceeds. And the, the court has to balance the ability of maintaining control with what it can do with a particular defendant. There are practical difficulties for taking away the right of self-representation. When Milosevic lost his right to represent himself, he said, well, I'm not going to cooperate with the assigned counsel. And how can the counsel defend me if he knows nothing about the case? Not only that, but he got word out to all the witnesses who refused to show up on the dates that they were assigned to come to court. So the court basically realized that they were losing the battle with Milosevic. Sejal resorted to a hunger strike. He said, if you aren't going to let me represent myself, then I'm going to kill myself. What are you going to do about it? And the court got to the point where they had to order forced feeding, which was very controversial. In either case, this makes the judicial proceedings look equally bad. And so again, even though there are things that the judges can do to maintain control of the court, they always have to be balanced 
about, and, and it's not an easy matter. One of the most effective things that the judges of international tribunals have realized they can do is to assign what is known as standby defense counsel or standby amicus counsel. Just like the judges have realized that they need to have alternate judges that are there from the beginning of the trial in case one of the judges die. And just to go back, at Nuremberg, there were four alternate judges because they knew it was going to be a long trial and they were ready to step in if one of the judges got sick. In the Milosevic case, in order to save money, there were no alternate judges. And when Judge May died halfway through the trial, they had to bring in an outside judge who had not been present during the first three years of the proceedings to be the third judge. But they've learned that lesson. The rules have been changed, and there are now alternate judges that are there at the beginning of every international war crimes trial. For the same reason, there needs to be standby defense counsel ready to step in when a self-represented defendant or when a defendant whose lawyer either becomes too ill to continue or becomes too obstructionist and disruptive to be allowed to continue. And what this does is it serves as a deterrent because a defendant or their lawyers are not going to be disruptive if they know that they can't actually derail the trial, if they know that someone else is ready to step in and continue the proceeding seamlessly without a pause. One of the legal issues that this has raised among many countries is how can a defense counsel represent a client when the client, like Milosevic, doesn't want to be represented and will not cooperate. In many countries, and especially the civil law countries of Europe, they have what is known as instructed counsel, which means the counsel really is the agent of the defendant and must do and be instructed by the defendant. And if the defendant says, don't show up in court, if the defendant says, use this strategy, that's what the instructed counsel must do. One of the ways around this problem is to appoint amicus counsel. Amicus curiae, meaning friends of the court, would be lawyers who are there not to defend the defendant, but rather to ensure that both sides of the case are brought to light so that the judges, at the end of the day, can have a balanced presentation and find the facts. If they're not representing the defendant, they still are entitled to ask questions of the prosecution witnesses through cross-examination to find out if there's any bias or other ways to discredit the witnesses. But what's tricky is, can an amicus counsel bring forth their own witnesses? What is known in the civil law countries as leading witnesses. And some countries feel that this is an inappropriate role of the amicus counsel, and others feel that if the court wants this function to be served by amicus counsel, as long as they don't call them defense counsel, as long as they don't suggest that they're representing the defendant, that this is appropriate. And this, I suggest, is one of the novel and most important new ways that war crimes tribunals can deal with the problems of maintaining order in the courtroom. Another thing that the tribunals can do is expel the defendant or the defendant's lawyers and have other kinds of sanctions. And this is something that has not been fully explored in the war crimes trials. In the Yugoslavia tribunal's Milosevic decision, they were the judges were very clear that whatever sanction you imposed on an obstructionist or disruptive defendant, it had to be proportionate and calibrated.
And this makes good sense for the reasons that we've been discussing. So what that means is if a defendant who is representing themselves has passive disrespect, for example, they refuse to stand up when the judges enter the room, or they refuse to say your honor, that can be ignored. It doesn't really impute the integrity of the proceedings. And the judges don't have to make an issue out of that. When a defense counsel or defendant refuses to play by the rules, often they're doing this because they feel that this is in response to some unfairness that occurred during the trial. In the Saddam Hussein trial, it was when the defendants had a number of motions to in one case, remove one of the judges, in other cases, challenge the jurisdiction of the court, and the judges didn't decide those motions. And for that reason, the defendants sort of ramped up their antagonism and their techniques of trying to disrupt the trials. So it is important that judges sit down out of the camera in their own chambers with the defendants and the defense counsel and have discussions about what is causing the defendant to not play by the rules. And if there's any way that they can improve the process to make it look more fair to the defendant, that is something that they ought to do before they move to more extreme measures. They also need to issue a firm and clear warning. They need to be very specific about what will happen if the disruptive conduct continues to occur. It is not fair, nor does it look fair, if a judge suddenly lashes out and throws a defendant out of court without giving a proper warning. If there are repeated interruptions and there have been warnings, then expulsion is appropriate. And if expulsion doesn't work on its own, there are other appropriate sanctions that have not been tried to this date. For example, the people who are being tried often have very nice situations of detention. I myself spent a full day touring the Yugoslavia Tribunal and ICC detention facility in The Hague just last summer. And it's really probably one of the best detention facilities anywhere in the world. These defendants have wonderful recreation opportunities. They have volleyball and basketball and a big screen TV that comes to them in, translated into Serbo-Croatian. They have the opportunity to read in a library. They get to play cards. They have conjugal visits. It's, it's quite different than in most countries. Well, if the defendant is acting disruptive, and the defendant doesn't mind being out of the courtroom, there are other things the judges can do to try to encourage the defendant to act appropriately, including moving them from a large cell to a smaller cell temporarily, taking away temporarily the rights of visitation, their rights to write books and articles like Sejal has done, um, their rights to play basketball and uh, volleyball or to watch television. And you can do this without going so far down the line that you violate the fundamental rights of a detainee. So there are things that the judges should never do, like take away the right to have free uh, freedom of air and, and um, recreation outside for a certain amount of time a day. But there are other things that are more privileges that can be taken away in a calibrated sense to induce the defendants to comply. And of course, the defendants have to have the right to reclaim their right of self-representation and their right to be present, um, followed by a calibrated response proportionate to the degree of their 
persistent disruptions. Now, what about defense counsel? We've been talking about how to maintain control of the self-represented defendant. Defense counsel can be a problem as well. Most of the world's legal systems follow the principle that a defense counsel should be, quote, respectful, courteous, and above board in all of his relations with a judge before he appears. This is especially important in a war crimes trial because deferential courtroom behavior is necessary to ensure that the judge's decisions do not look like they are based on emotional reactions to insult. The obligations of defense counsel throughout the world are not just to his client, but also to the court and the larger interest of justice that the court is serving. Defense counsel are not merely agents of their clients. If a client insists that the defense counsel help them in misconduct, or that the defense counsel themselves engage in misconduct, for example, um, asking inappropriate questions that are not relevant but are there to inflame the populations that are watching television or to intimidate a witness, or if they use cross-examination not to ask questions at all but to make long diatribes, or if they try to provoke the judge by insulting them, calling them names, or storming out of the courtroom. Those things that a defense defendant may ask his counsel to do are inappropriate. And the defense counsel cannot excuse his own professional misconduct on the ground that his client demanded it. So if defense counsel acts inappropriately, the judge again should issue a warning. And if the warning is not followed, there are sanctions that the judge can impose on defense counsel, including fines, a night in jail, or even suspension or disbarment of the right to practice law, and of course being replaced. And these things tend to be more successful and effective with the defense counsel than with the self-represented defendant. Although I must point out that very few international war crimes trial judges have ever tried these to date. In conclusion, defendants and defense counsel do not have the right to disrupt a war crimes trial. The broader interest of international justice require, in the words of the Yugoslavia Tribunal, quote, that the trial proceeds in a timely manner without interruptions, adjournments, or disruptions. Hopefully this lecture today will help those who are engaged in war crimes trials throughout the world to maintain control of those proceedings so that their trials can achieve the benefits that these institutions were meant to accomplish. Thank you very much and good day.